0: One night last spring, my partner and I were getting ready for bed. I was telling her about my day, and suddenly she pointed at me and said, there's a frog in here. I was confused. But I realized she wasn't pointing at me. I followed her gaze, and sure enough, there was a frog on our closet door. Not something I expected to see. The frog was just chilling there on the door, but I panicked a little. I was imagining rolling onto it at 2 a.m. Squish. So I said to Molly, keep an eye on it. I'm going to get a jar. I ran to the kitchen, ran back with the jar, but the frog had jumped. She lost it. Right below the closet door was her laundry basket. We both said, in there. She started to dump it out, and I said, not in here. So she took it to the back porch and one by one took out her clothes and shook them at arm's length because she was, understandably, worried that the frog might jump on her. I wasn't as worried about myself because I was pretty sure a frog couldn't jump around a corner ten feet away. I watched Molly empty the basket. No frog. We ran back to the bedroom. Bin of shoes. Don't dump it in here. Molly looked at me. Dumped it in here. No frog. Then I noticed the meditation cushion next to the closet, which I clearly don't use very often. And it occurred to me to pick that up. And there was the frog. Serene as a lotus flower. I put the jar over it. Once it was confined, it was a lot easier to feel friendly with it. It hopped onto the side of the jar, and we spent a while looking at its white belly and its gray, mottled back. We took pictures and looked it up online. Cope's gray tree frog. It was pretty cool, although I thought tree frogs lived in the tropics, not southern Indiana. That was the first bad sign. Eventually, we took it outside to go free, and there was another tree frog on our siding. We closed the window and went to bed, listening to them sing. It was raining that night, and it kept raining. A couple nights later, Molly pointed out two frogs on the outside of our sunroom window. Pretty soon there were three, four, five, all chirping away. We watched them for a while, then I went out into the misty night and saw probably ten more all over our house. The neighborhood trees were full of them. It was otherworldly. Cool air, wet frogs. It felt like a rainforest. I thought to myself, we're doomed. See, I worry about climate change pretty constantly. Anytime the weather seems out of whack, warm stretch in January, a day of heavy rain, it's another sign of catastrophe staring me down. So when these tree frogs that seemed like they should live in the Amazon took up residence on my street, climbing up the trees to sing to each other, getting ready to mate and make new life, all I could think was, we're all going to die. For better or worse, I'm not the only person who thinks this way.
1: That's uh, all I think about as well. Okay. <laughs> I, this, yeah. is, this is what I do. So, okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't work on climate change, but it affects everything I do. Yeah. So I do think about it the same way.
0: I'd been curious whether the tree frogs really were some sort of climate-induced plague upon us. So I went and talked with ecologist Turner W. That's his last name. W. 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 Like the letter? But not the letter. The name. D-E-B-L-I-E-U-X. Anyway, Turner's a PhD student in ecology at Indiana University. So I found him in the science building on campus, and he told me the frogs weren't a plague at all. They're actually quite common in southern Indiana. They were just, you know, doing their springtime thing.
1: They'll get on your house, right? A single tree frog might get on your house. The temperature's right, the humidity's right, and so it'll start to call hoping to gather a bunch of other males that will also call Um, and so generally if one male's calling another male will hear it and they'll say that must be a good spot they'll get over there they'll either find their own space or they'll compete for like a space and then they'll start calling as well a bunch of males calling attracts a bunch of females which is what they want and so the goal is to, is to develop a chorus. So a chorus is what, how I described it earlier was, if I walk into a pond and the calling stops, it's not a chorus, and that's how you know. <laughs> Which isn't a really, that's not a great threshold. So they're reaching out, trying to find each other. Get it on. When they're on your house, they're probably not attempting to chorus, they're just trying to attract. In a pond, they would chorus. Or at least they're trying to gather a quorum. But so, okay, they were doing their thing. But I was still pretty sure it was a plague. I mean, I'd never heard them like this before. It also could be it was just a timing difference. I noticed that they bred kind of later last year than they typically do. And so I did notice hearing the calls more clearly. And it could have been it was a bad year and everyone was desperate, so they (laughs) called more. Okay, so it was climate change. I knew it. The polar
0: vortex the previous winters had put them on the edge of survival. These were their desperate
1: final calls. So... The gray tree frog and the copes gray tree frog are pretty common uh, as far as frogs go. So I'm not super worried about them as far as uh, climate change. They have a really large range and they're they're pretty general. Like they can adapt to a house, you know, so they don't face a combination of threats per se. Or maybe they're fine, which was reassuring. All the rain we're going to keep getting in the Midwest,
0: at least it'll be good for the frogs. Climate change is terrifying, but the frogs are going to be
1: just fine. I mean, all frogs are doing really terribly right now, so I can't say that, like, you know, like one in four frogs faces the threat of extinction at this moment. In history, it's like a huge extinction-level event, and so I can't say that they're going to be safe. But if any frog is safe, it's the gray tree frog, the bullfrog, you know, the, the very common frogs that have a really wide distribution, they're probably going to be okay.
0: The gray tree frogs are adaptable. And I know that doesn't hold for all the creatures. As Turner reminded us, we're in the midst of the sixth major extinction event in the planet's history. But for now, it's worth remembering that humans are pretty adaptable too. As much as we worry about the future, we don't actually know what it holds. Which brings me to today's show. This is Interstates, by the way, from member-supported WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. Today's show is about the future, specifically how to survive the future which is the name of a podcast about today from the perspective of tomorrow. It's a show I produced for Indiana Humanities with my friend and collaborator, Allison Quants. All five episodes are available in podcast feeds right now. Today on Interstates, I'm going to play you the first two. How to Survive the Future started because I was worried about the planet. Then I realized I could maybe find someone to tell me how things were going to work out. So I called up some farmers I knew, Liz and Nate Brownlee, We sat down around their kitchen table in the year 2060 and talked about the past. It was raining because here in Indiana, there's going to be a lot of rain.
2: Once my way of making a living, my entire life really, not just money, but the way I valued my time, moved outside and onto the farm. Brain took on a different meaning, and I had been, you know, learning to farm on other people's farms up in New England, and it was amazing to be an hourly worker and to not have a ton of accountability, not as as much riding on it as, as the farmer themselves, and so I slept like a champ because I was working like a dog. I would just exhaust myself and, and sleep really well. Once I was paying bills and running a farm and relying on the stability of the system and structure that I thought I understood rain took on a different meaning and so I didn't sleep through nights when it would rain I would think about my chickens in the field I would think about my sheep getting wet I I would think about what it would mean for tomorrow's day of chores and I would lay awake and still do that to this day (laughs) because none of us now can run away or avoid the realities of what it is outdoors Uh, because even when we're inside that's a that's present piece of our reality
0: what were some of the things you did on the farm over the decades to sort of mitigate the intensities
2: well you know we moved into a farm that had been row crops you know annual crops year after year after year and so instituting perennials was a huge piece of it (laughs) i remember those first couple years of our farm We were planting in trees, you know, we had all these grand ideas, like, oh, we're finally where we're going to be rather than moving around, so let's plant oak trees. Maybe one day they'll be huge. And oak trees are beautiful, and I loved them, but when we would mow the pasture and miss spots, because the pigs were in the way of the mower, trees would grow there, and they would be trees that wanted to be there, and they would be eight times as tall as the trees that I had planted, you know, in a span of just months, and so the big plants that we were letting live year after year after year got really good at drinking the water that was in our soil there was one year we were on a three-week butcher schedule every three weeks we were going to the butcher and the rain was on the same schedule and so when you can't drive out to the pasture to collect your animals to go to the butcher you got to bring the animals to the road and so our, our little 13 acre field wasn't huge but when you're building alleys of electric net to move the pigs from the back of the pasture all the way up to the road and you got to do it over the course of two days feels a lot bigger than it does when you're just thinking about it on a a google map so yeah once we once we realized how to choreograph the dance in such a way that we could preempt rather than response that that was a huge piece of the puzzle
0: could you actually introduce yourselves yes
3: Sure, Um, I'm Liz Brownlee
2: And I'm Nate Brownlee
3: And and this is our farm So this is Nightfall Farm And we're on my family's land here in Jennings County, Indiana What was the hardest part
0: in those years?
3: Just a fear You know, like We didn't know how it was going to turn out then I wish I could have known. All right. That was always the thing. If I had only known then what I know now, then I could have probably been more ambitious um, because we could have gone the right direction more quickly. And I could have been less scared and stressed out by climate change uh, because I would have known like, oh, people are going to come around. But at the time I didn't know. And, um, you know, when you're a farmer who's, you know, in your six of your business or something like, how do you know where to invest? Right. Is it worth putting another $10,000 into fences that, you know, those fields may not be grazeable in 15 years because it's going to be always too wet or too hot or too something. Um, should you pack up your bags and move to Michigan because the climate projections look better there than they do in Indiana? Should you just give up altogether and go to London and protest? You remember the protesters, the, uh, extinction protesters, right? Like we talked about that. Should we just go because is this working or not? I don't know. And what are the, what are the long-term prospects of a farm in Indiana? We didn't know, and that was scary. Probably the coolest indicator of life returning to this place, I would say, because you know, growing up, this was all corn and soybeans, and um, you know, there's not a lot of life in a corn or soybean field. It's basically just that crop. Um, when we're out here, we see tons of different birds. We great blue herons that fly over and we see bugs and spiders of all shapes and sizes and little snakes and big snakes and we assume that all that life means there's a food web that's reforming here and that's encouraging to us. We'll take these buckets. So you're going to, what do you think, like a half bucket in each and we'll take it over to whoever needs it? Ah, uh, Not even, but yeah. Okay. You guys want to go on other side of the, tree, not the Sure yeah let's go around. Yeah. This that hole yeah so we sit really wet here and mm-hmm. I only recently learned that not everybody knows what that means so <laughs> okay. uh, if you sit wet that means your soils are very um, heavy clay soils where the water table is really high we're right by the Muscatatuck River it's just beyond the next tree line and um, essentially the the crawdads uh, are prolific here because it's a wet clay heavy place and that's the habitat they like so actually when I was a kid my dad would answer the phone crawdad holler Um, and we thought about naming the farm crawdad holler but we thought like I don't know if that actually sounds like a serious business Um, (laughs) maybe it sounds like a party Um, so we went with nightfall farm instead Um, Some of climate change, we couldn't stop, right? It was too late to stop some of the impacts. So we still, you know, we get these heavy rains, um, these downpours that happen. We have more intense heat in the summer and crazier ups and downs throughout the year, you know. So it'll be June something and it's 68 degrees, even though it ought to be 80. And it'll be February and it'll be also 68 degrees. But we stopped the worst of it. People started to see climate change happening in their lives. They started to see, you know, it's in the middle of June and they couldn't plant their crops. That was becoming a real problem. And so they said, we've got to change something. And so they started thinking about soil health. And over time, they ended up thinking about climate and we were able to, to halt climate change. And it wasn't any big technological fix, you know, that pie in the sky stuff that they were talking about back in the, you know, 2000, 2015 range. People finally gave up on it because it wasn't going to happen. It was too expensive. What really happened was a total revolution in farming because people started to see that we could sequester a lot of carbon with our grazing lands. And there were these farmers back in the 2015-2018 range that were doing some really cool on-the-ground trials in like South Dakota and California, and they were showing how much carbon we could sequester on our grazing lands, on our pastures. And then farmers like Nate and I started to pay attention to that and started to mimic those practices and... And then our neighbors started to mimic those practices, and, and it, it trickled in pretty quickly. And we pulled out a whole bunch of carbon from the atmosphere, and here we are, and we're doing all right. Now we want some trees out here. You can see we've got tree rows, um, some of which we've planted, and some we just let come up. Um, you know, it gets hot here in Indiana and hotter all the time. So we need shade for the sheep. And for us, <laughs> basically everywhere you see a tree row used to be a like a drainage ditch. And so we just planted trees along the ditch cool. and um, and we're adding more kind of all the time. We've been adding some willows and especially wet places and um, bald cypress from the conservation nursery. So you can get like a hundred trees for thirty bucks. Right. you know
2: That's so great.
0: Did you, did you have moments of despair?
3: Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. On a pretty regular basis, right? And and how wouldn't you, right? Uh, so, you know, you look at a forecast that says rain for the next 10 days, two inches today and, and more tomorrow, right? Um, as a farmer, I know exactly what that means for the health of my pasture, for the health of my chickens, right, for my ability to do chores. So I remember a night where, you know, We were up until 2 a.m. moving chickens and chicken tractors to a drier place because we had to butcher the coming Wednesday. And if we didn't get those chickens to a better position before the next day, maybe they wouldn't drown, but we'd have no way to get out to them to put them in the livestock trailer to take them to the butcher. And that just doesn't work. So we stayed up till 2 a.m. moving chickens. And that's just not a very, that's not a way to run a business with that amount of inconsistency and fear and stress. I remember at the time thinking, like, oh, if we could only start a farm in, like, the 80s, we'd be, like, established now, and our soil health would be so much further along, and, you know, we'd we'd be okay. But we're okay now. Hey, Nate, can I help? I bet he's just finishing up. So these are the meat chickens. Yeah, and what might be good, let me switch out with him. Mm -hmm. You can chat with him for a little bit. He can tell you about the meat chickens, and Mm then, um... And then you guys can come in. Maybe I'll go, maybe I'll pop in and start on the barn chores.
2: You can go in with them if you want. Might as well, yeah.
0: So they've got grain, water, and
2: they're also feeding on. Yeah, so. Sacks and things. little frogs oh, uh cool. i've seen one with a crawdad claw but i didn't see them get the crawdad uh-huh. so yeah they're i mean they're they're opportunistic they'll take what they can find right. uh and one of the things i really like is when they find something and it's too big for them to eat because they don't have hands to help put, pick it apart their instinctual behavior is to make noise and squeak and run around and all the other birds follow it and so they just pull it apart through sharing but also kind of a, a fun game of keep away that's really uh, that's fun on the farmer and i I think, you know, they benefit from getting to have a bite-sized morsel rather than something they can't eat. But I don't know if it's as fun for them as this is for me.
0: And then how old do they get?
2: We do ours for six weeks. Okay. Uh, so it's good for cash flow for the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great for the pasture. Uh Usually you can see a dark green path where the tractors have pulled. And so you can see the little light green spaces between the tractors where they haven't fertilized it as well. So yeah, they, they've...
0: And do you like move it up? every day?
2: We move them every day, yep. Yeah, uh-huh. so they move forward one length of the tractor. So they're getting a, a new 12 feet every day. Uh-huh. And you know, they leave behind this manure carpet and that turns into gold. Uh, manure can be a waste product if you got too much of it. But if you utilize the employees to spread it out for you, then shoot, it's a pretty sweet thing.
3: Back in 2020, there was a farm that we were, we were really good friends with. Those guys still are. They had been all commodity crops. They were doing all non-GMO at the time, which was kind of crazy. But they still sold into the commodity market. But they started dabbling in local and regional sales. And that's what carried them through the hard years. And they, so they just kept doubling down on that strategy and their neighbors saw it and they saw it working. And so they, they took notice and, and they started adding, you know, so they started that farm added, you know, popcorn and they started selling some of their beef locally. And they added small grains that they could sell at market and ground their own wheat and that sort of thing. And, and then, you know, they'd have neighbors who would add oats and they started grinding oats for oatmeal. And they'd have another neighbor who had been selling dairy on the open commodity market for, a generation and then they started making ice cream and butter and everybody likes ice cream and butter you know so it worked those things farmers aren't we're not always quick to change but when you can see your neighbor do it and it works that's very encouraging i think they called it over the back fence conservation so it works (laughs)
0: Crawdad holes, is that what you said? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I've Some never seen them before. Chimneys. Yeah, chimneys. Yeah, Chim- right. Private, private that makes chimneys, sense.
3: Yeah. yeah, uh-huh. I think back to the farmer's markets, sitting around at the farmer's markets back then and the old timers. Uh, I remember Butch and uh, John's dad and then those guys, you know, they'd be talking about like, oh, I, I remember when it was this wet in 1967 or whatever. And, um, and they would just talk about like well, well well it'll be all right, and they're up down up years and down years, and that's the thing that farmers have always said, like next year will be better, like <laughs> it's hard to be a pessimist and a farmer at the same time, right I think farmers just didn't want to think about it, you know because if if you start started to think about it, um it was a very serious problem for your business model and your identity and your business and your but your family as well, so I think the economics though or maybe what finally got people to wake up um because farmers started to see not just a few bad years right they saw noticeable losses year after year and you can't argue with the numbers after a while and you can't take a loss year after year after year after a while and so i think that's what got people to pay attention
0: and on a personal level did you feel despair
3: absolutely i absolutely felt despair um I just couldn't understand why other people all around me—you know, my neighbors and my legislators and everyone in between—couldn't um, see the problem. It just didn't make any sense to me. Like, don't don't they care about my future? Don't they care about their own futures? Don't they care about their grandkids? I couldn't make sense of it. I just wanted to shake people, <laughs> like just any random person I saw, I'd just take them aside and say, "Please, don't you get it?" You know, I joked about farmers can't be pessimists, but I'm absolutely a (laughs) pessimist. So, yeah, it's stressful. I mean, but Nate and I, you know, we always used to debate about this. Like, does change happen? Is the most effective change big change or small change? And um, we we decided that our farm was going to be the change that we could affect. And so that's what we did. And here we are. It's 2060 and we're doing all right. Because we sit so wet, cattle are a hard fit right? They're big animals. Um, And so if it's wet, they're up to their knees in mud at all times, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas sheep are much lighter animals, but they're still grazers. And what we want here is pasture um, because you can sequester a lot of carbon with pasture. You can raise a lot of good food with pasture. um, And we enjoy working outside with our animals, right? So people ask us like, why don't you grow vegetables? And we, we sort of say like, well, I like pigs more than I like carrots that she her name's Gracie she's a mom Mm -hmm. one of our mamas and you know she was just eating a little uh, ash tree sapling and now she's munching on some grass and you know there are some flower weed type things some briars in here some clovers and all those things have different you know chemical makeups and actually the diversity of diet gives them a diversity of types of fats and that's what turns into flavor Nate can tell you more about the science but that's the sum of it and I think that's really cool
0: If you guys could describe what it's like there now,
3: oh, it's so nice. We can pop into the shade anytime we want.
2: Sit on the swing.
0: Oh,
3: we have this full-size swing, like a porch swing, but it's hang—it's hanging in a big old sycamore tree that we planted. Yeah, back in what would have that been? Well, we didn't plant it. You're right. That was one that we just let grow, starting back in 2014. It's a big, beautiful tree now. We used to
2: call that the Pig Woods. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Because the pigs were in that paddock, so we had to mow around them. And then all of a sudden, next year, without us planning on it, we had a hundred by hundred square foot section of cottonwoods and sycamores that it was dense as could be those first couple of years, super dark underneath. And they started out competing each other. And and the sycamore was the grand champion of them all. Yeah, it was the
3: winner. And we've got, gosh, how many sheep do we have these days?
2: You didn't count noses this morning? (laughs)
3: So we've got sheep grazing um, here and on the hill farm, which feels really good because that's the part of the farm that has really nice um, old woods, and so we get to we get more time these days to go over there and um, hike around because we have to go check on the animals, and that's good. Um, and you know, when we moved back here, there were gullies almost um, up to my waist, and um, that land has really healed and come back to life as well.
0: That was episode one of How to Survive the Future, a podcast about today from the perspective of tomorrow. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or you can keep listening, because I'm about to play you episode two, Bloomington Birth Center. We're gonna hear from Katie Barris. She's the mother of two sons, Amin and Awais. They're grown men at this point, but they still do dinner together almost every week, along with Amin's wife, Sarah, and Katie's husband, Hassan.
4: I just really like trying to cook new things, and I like to see them a lot. And so we just have a very casual dinner on Fridays. They came over, and we sat down, we ate. Sarah had brought over cookies. She brings over the dessert, and so it's nice that um, I don't have to do that, too. But she brought out the cookies, and we started getting into them, and Amin said, Mom, Mom, we had something that we really wanted to talk to you about. For some reason, my mind didn't go to that right away. (laughs) Like, I thought maybe, like, I don't know. I, I don't know why, but I didn't go there. But then when they both looked at me, I knew... Like, because they both looked up and looked at me. And I'm like, okay, like, I think I know what's going on. But I didn't say that because I wanted them to be, to tell me. And so, Sarah said, I'm pregnant. And of course I I started crying because I was just overwhelmed and excited. And I gave them both a big hug. A
1: fairy house, I also said a cherry house. <laughs> A
4: waste if- um, has been out of town a lot with his job, and so he didn't, he actually couldn't make it that Friday. So we all sat together and we video called A I think he knew immediately, like when they, when we all called, we were all there, like all on the camera at once, and it was just like, okay, he was very happy for them, and um, I think he's excited to have a nephew so or <laughs> a nephew or a niece
0: so they decided to find out ahead of time um or did or are you just not wanting to reveal it
4: <laughs> i might already know <laughs> <laughs> How about Hassan? How's he? He's really excited, too. He's always talked about having grandkids and how he is excited to, like, be that person that he always wanted, like, to to help out and to not just be there when it's easy and fun and drop by and see the kids, but, like, actually, like, be like, I'm here for you. You know, call me at 3 o'clock in the morning if you need me.
5: And a creature found some poma
4: I'm also just very excited to do all the toddler things Um, because, again, I think that that's a phase that's really tough and exhausting. And I think it's great when you have somebody step in and um, just kind of like play all the games they want to play, like running around and getting outside and getting their energy out. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. I just think toddlers are hilarious and they say really funny things. So I'm excited about that, too.
6: I'm standing in the place where it all started upstairs in our house. Our son was born in the bedroom. And just around the corner, I went into another room to start the night because I needed to not be on the floor. We had a futon on the floor. And I just remember the beginning of this incredibly mind-altered state.
4: I think no matter how the birth goes...
6: I was
7: not prepared for what was to come. The parents are usually exhausted by the end. I don't think I ever really thought about it except that I wanted a child very much.
4: And then they have a fresh newborn that they have to take care of.
7: For some reason, I
6: had no idea what it would mean
7: to have a newborn...
6: It was the most amazing and the most frightening (laughs) sense of responsibility and love and transformation. And so
4: I hope that I can be there to make that transition
6: easier for them. I felt like I had walked through a threshold into a very sacred space, but also a really messy Like body fluid, poop, mucus, milk, all the things, um, space as well. I can think of nothing more spiritual nor more physical than the experience of becoming a mother.
4: Of course I hope their experience is not like mine. We had been wanting to have a baby for a couple of years and when I found out I was pregnant, we both didn't really believe it for for a while, just because we had been wanting to
8: get pregnant for so long. Going into the birth of my first child, I had really high expectations for how awesome and completely natural it would be. And then
4: the experience of giving birth came (laughs) as it
8: does. And it was neither of those things. It was protracted. Uh, I was in labor for 51 hours. Pitocin. I got all of the meds they will give you. Dilated. Whatever the thing is that makes you dilate.
4: I was starting to have what I think was early labor pains.
8: And then right as I got to the point where I was in transition and like starting to feel the urge to push. And it just continued like all that night. The doctors and the midwives were like, well, stop. And we were both really afraid. Try to keep that baby in there because uh, the baby is breech and you need to have a C-section right now. And Hassan
4: panicked and called the doulas. And I think we got ahead of ourselves a little bit. I think we could have just hung out a little bit longer, maybe even tried to sleep. Then it was a long period of time. It was 12 hours. Luckily, the doulas that we had worked as partners, and so they switched out so that they could get some rest. Things at home were painful, but they were never really that scary, especially with the doulas there. But when we got to the hospital, it became scary to me. It's just an environment that you're there at the hospital when you're sick. You know, someone you know is getting surgery, or someone you know is dying, or you yourself are injured or hurt or whatever. And that environment just amped up my anxiety and fear, and the pain that before was manageable became unmanageable, and also my exhaustion started to wear on me. So it had been, like I said, at this point, at least 24 hours already of no sleep and excitement turning to anxiety. And Hassan was the same. We were both running on fumes, and then just hours continued to pass. One of my main birth preferences was to not have any pain medication at all. I don't like to take medication unless I absolutely have to. And I was really nervous about the what effects those medications might have on my baby and me. And so I was very firm on that. And in fact, to the point of kind of being semi, not outwardly, but in my mind, kind of judgmental of People who did get an epidural or got some type of pain medication during their labor and birth. But I just remember the pain getting worse and worse and worse and finally realizing that I was thinking about the epidural and being afraid to tell Hassan and the doulas that I wanted the epidural because I was ashamed. And then telling them that I wanted it and their reaction being better than I could have ever hoped for, like very supportive and yeah, just like totally understanding, totally supportive, totally non-judgmental whatsoever. And just like the sense of relief of like, it was like the shame outweighed the pain at that point. Like, before I said that, because it was so, it was a lot. It was a lot to admit that. And then, um, after I had the epidural, I very much became just, like, a patient to the staff. Like, an unnamed patient, kind of. Like, they were doing things to me, and I was just kind of on the bed with no feeling. And, um... we had to use some Pitocin to kind of move things along because things were taking so long after I got the epidural still. And so this was just more and more hours of not sleeping. And I remember Hassan being next to me and sleeping in a chair, but like waking up in panic like every five minutes. And... Then when it was, you know, the doctor came in, the new, the new doctor. And she just came in the room and turned on all the lights and just kind of checked me without really asking to check me, my, my cervix. And then said, okay, it's, you know, time to push. And it just felt like very, just seemed like very rushed. It was very rushed and very impersonal and cold. And she was very rough with me. And she was tugging a lot. after he was born, they started suctioning him very, very vigorously and took him away from me and wouldn't let me have him. And said that there was some meconium that he swallowed. And despite him looking really good and seeming healthy, they took him away. And they were really vigorously sucking out stuff from his mouth and his throat. And then the, the doctor was pulling the placenta pretty roughly. And... I started bleeding a lot, and so they had to give me some extra medication, not just the Pitocin they usually give, but an additional medication to stop the bleeding. And after that, we stayed for two days. The first time that Hassan and I finally passed out, the nurses came and took Amine from the room without telling us. And so we woke up and he was gone. And then Hassan went to go find him and he ran out of the room and walked up to the desk. And as he was walking up to the desk, one of the nurses was talking to another nurse and reading off a piece of paper and was reading our son's name off and said his whole name, said Amin Hassan Ahmed. Jesus Christ. What a ridiculous name. And later that day, we left the hospital and went home. And Amin was having a lot of difficulty breastfeeding. And I wasn't getting sleep. And... I just kept trying and trying to breastfeed. I really didn't want to use formula. Again, one of those things that I was judgmental about before I actually went through it myself and realized that (laughs) it's really fucking hard. And breastfeeding went really, really terribly for about six to eight weeks of me trying and being in excruciating pain. I mean, even to the point of bleeding, my nipples bleeding, was very painful. And he had a really tough time latching, which we found out through physical therapy was because of the vigorous um, suctioning at birth. Um, So he, he had a gag reflex to anything being put in his mouth because of that experience. And so anytime I tried to put my breast in his mouth, he gagged and moved away. And I'd say around three months was where it really started to get a lot better.
9: And when I took him home and he would cry because I knew he was hungry, I would cry too, knowing how much it was going to hurt to feed him. So then there's that decision you're trying to make where do I do I supplement with formula? I just like just one give myself a break for one feeding. When I asked his pediatrician about that, she was really like you can do that, but you're going to destroy his gut. And so and so it just hurt for 4 months until until it stopped hurting.
4: I remember my doula's coming at 6 weeks to come do their check-in visit and them asking me to tell my birth story and I told them but I've already, like, you guys were there. <laughs> why, why would I tell you my story? And they said, okay, you know, just just go ahead and take it from the top. Just tell us the story. And I'm like, do you mean, like, the details, like, when you, when you weren't there? Like, what do you mean? And they were like, no, just tell the story from the beginning to the end and your, you know, your perspective.
9: I felt like there was a community of support that I'd heard about, but I – didn't know how to access it, like it was a club that I didn't belong to.
4: Only then did it really hit me that that experience was traumatic for me. I didn't realize that before then. I knew that having a baby was hard, and that I was struggling, and breastfeeding wasn't going well. And you know, I kind of just thought maybe this is normal. You know, breastfeeding obviously there's some issues, but. You know maybe it's normal to feel miserable. Maybe it's normal to feel like you don't want to live anymore. Maybe that's just like a temporary thing and everything's fine.
9: I was probably feeling like in some ways I didn't I didn't really deserve the help.
4: It was scary how miserable I was. I remember crying to Hassan and being like I just, I can't believe how absolutely miserable I am. Like, is this, I was just terrified that this was how life was going to be forever. And that was so scary. I'm glad that they had me tell the story because I think it was very healing for me to tell the story. And every time I tell someone who really listens I think it is a part of the healing.
7: And clearly I'm still healing.
0: <laughs> it's been decades now since you went through all that. Um, what is it like to tell that story now?
4: I guess now when I tell the story, I'm no longer just thinking about me, but I'm also thinking about my kids and what I want from their experiences. If Sarah is feeling the misery that I felt, I want to be there to say that it's temporary and it sucks, but it doesn't last forever. But it really sucks
7: while it's happening. And she was telling me, it's all going to work out. You just have to breathe and Uh, you know, take time to uh, introduce this child into your life. Um, Because sometimes I felt like I would never perform or direct again.
0: What are they doing to prepare?
7: Sarah really wanted to give
4: birth at the birth center. And I'm very excited about that because You know you see the same midwife throughout your entire pregnancy and she's also the one that's there when you're giving birth and so you're not walking and not knowing who's going to be there you have someone who you know and you're comfortable with and it's more homey like it feels comfy and um so you don't feel that sterile environment of the hospital i love it yeah i'm i'm very excited postpartum
5: Does that mean something after the parting that in fact is like a great joining or a great finding out? I feel like it's so much more of a entering into a giant cathedral or vast forest and field and suddenly swimming in the ocean um, and then back out crawling onto the beach and basking in the sunlight and then animals are coming and flying and surrounding us like I was once run across by a, a field of monkeys in Dharamsala in northern India, ran across me and didn't even notice I was there. I don't know why I'm thinking of that now. I guess it's about like the massivity of life force that I experience. When you become a parent, like
4: you realize how difficult it is and sometimes you make decisions that you thought you'd never make, like...
7: One time when we had calmed down, we totally forgot we had a baby and we got halfway to Joe's Pizza, which is down the street, walking to, get our, to do what we used to do, get a pizza together, and had to rush back because we remembered we had a baby sleeping uh, in the in, in the crib um, on the second floor.
4: When I went into my second birth, labor and birth, I was more cognizant of like, this is unpredictable and I'm here for the ride. (laughs)
8: I also ate my placenta after my second birth, you know, got the placenta freeze dried and turned into capsules. Whether or not that actually was part of um, why the postpartum period was so much better, I don't know, Um, but it definitely was much better the second time around.
4: I definitely have like preferences and and certain things that I would like that I can kind of control, like having a doula there.
6: I don't know. I suppose for the baby, there's no sense of separation between where he ended and I began. That unity that had happened within um, and during the pregnancy, that just stayed for a very long time. I feel like parents and
4: I think Women especially are like pushed past their limits. And I guess the other thing is just like, I just remember being the first year, just being so happy um, as a family and feeling like just so proud of
5: that. And like, we did that thing and we're doing this thing. So amazing to have carried a little schmooka luka tuka puka in my belly for nine months or couple weeks late, and then whoosh, she's out and she rose up with a tall hand and arm and fist, strong and powerful. A lot of the families I work with, they think
4: that they do have a lot of control. And they do in some ways. But they, I think that they think that they have more control than they actually really do. And I always encourage families to think through like birth plans and things like that, because I feel like it's really helpful to learn these things and to understand what their options are and everything but at the same time like you know making it clear through conversations we have that this isn't set in stone and let's try to be open
5: and like curious with like the experience that we have my daughter's just turned five and I feel like I'm entering another a new postpartum phase or place um she's so strong and independent and yet needs me in such a another way. Um, so I'm learning. I'm growing. I guess that's the biggest thing. Oh, my God. Change, 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 change.
0: So I think the last thing that I wanted to do is just see if you wanted to introduce yourself again.
4: <laughs> I always have struggled with introducing myself. Actually, I struggle with, like basically everything we're doing in this conversation which is just like talking about myself and like yeah (laughs) okay um i'm katie i'm a mom of two boys a professor of criminology and a birth doula um
0: do you have like favorite foods or anything
4: um I got a triple chocolate raspberry croissant a few weeks back, and it was life-changing. So maybe that, <laughs> yeah, changed my life.
6: I,
8: mean, I mean mess, no, I mean uh,
5: too heavy.
0: mama carrot. That was episode two of How to Survive the Future, a podcast about today from the perspective of tomorrow. Here on Interstates from WFIU, I'm Alex Chambers. How to Survive the Future was produced by me, with Allison Quants, who also came up with our title. Music is by airport people, Amy Olsner, Backward Collective and Last Ledges, and Ramon Munros sender Thanks to Molly Weiler and Kate Young for additional editorial support. Thanks also to the mothers who lent their voices to that episode. That's Georgianne Catalona, Cheryl Studley, Amy Pickard, Amy Messer, Eliza Ladd, and Toby Kaufman. How to Survive the Future is produced in partnership with Indiana Humanities, with funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and with further support from the Writers Guild at Bloomington. And, Inner States is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Pascash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. As always, our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. Alright, time for some found sound. That was Walking on the Boardwalk at McCormick's Creek State Park, recorded by Molly Weiler. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.